We're sort of seeing in the Zoe studies that it's actually easier to influence your bad microbes than it is to improve your good ones. If identical twins are different for their microbes, that means that a lot of these things we have taken for granted just aren't true. The idea that a calorie is always equal, that's complete nonsense, and the science is now absolutely proving it. I think a real growing area about how important gut microbes are for things like anxiety and depression in humans, and studies have shown it's, you can get the same results with a good diet as you can with antidepressant Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, this is a long, long awaited episode. We've been talking about the Zoe program on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast for quite a while now, and I finally bit the bullet and jumped in and did the whole experience. I have an unboxing video and videos about my experience on my Instagram. But wow, it was <laughs> so fascinating. I ate these specially formulated Zoe muffins with specific timing and fasting, which by the way, it is so hard to fast after you've eaten one of these muffins. And which also, by the way, people say the muffins don't taste good. It was literally like the most amazing thing I've ever tasted in my entire life. I dream about these muffins. I'm not even kidding. My theory is that if you don't ever eat processed foods like me, then they taste amazing. You wear a CGM, you do a blood prick test at home, and you learn how your body processes carbs and fats. And it turned out to be exactly what I thought. I process fats really well, carbs not so much. Which I think is actually pretty telling that my blood sugar levels in general are very good and my A1C is very good. I guess what I'm doing eating wise to mitigate my poor blood sugar clearance is working. That's how I like to look at that. I also did a gut microbiome test with the Zoe program and the whole thing was just so eye-opening. So if that's not cool enough, Tim Spector, who is the legend behind the Zoe company, is also an incredible author of The Diet Myth and Spoon Fed, and he is a wealth of knowledge when it comes to how foods affect our body and in particular our gut microbiomes. I cannot recommend his books enough. And then on top of that, he's just the kindest, most amazing, awesome person. This conversation was so fascinating and I think you guys are going to love, love, love it. I also love hearing about your own Zoe experiences. Please share them with me. You can get 10% off the Zoe program. Just go to joinzoe.com and use the coupon code MelanieAvalon10. Again, that will get you a CGM, the specially formulated muffins, a stool test, a blood sample test, and then the results tell you so much about your body. And then their Zoe Insights app afterwards tells you how foods will affect you so you can find the foods that will really work for you. If you'd like to learn more, definitely join my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. A lot of people have shared their Zoe experience there. And again, it's also on my Instagram as well. The show notes for today's episode 
episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Zoe. Those show notes will have a complete transcript, so definitely check that out. And then there will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in that Facebook group, IF Biohackers. The other will be on my Instagram. Just find the post about this episode on both groups. It's pinned to the top of the Facebook group. And comment something you learned or something that resonated with you to enter to win something I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or algae, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MelanieAvalon, as well as a 20% off code when you text AvalonX to 877-861-8318. That's AvalonX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys 
If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which may mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all Beauty Counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash cleanbeauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences, and I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Tim Spector. 
Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. And not only am I excited, I know that you guys are super excited because you have been begging for this episode for, I mean, probably over a year now. So the history on the conversation, the history of what led up to today, I don't know when it was, probably a year ago or so, my co-host Jen Stevens on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast did a program called Zoe with the Predict Studies. And it was so cool, basically, and we're going to dive deep into what it is today. But It's an entire program that analyzes your gut microbiome and your blood sugar and fat clearance response and creates a personalized profile for how you process food. She loved it and was raving about it. I started getting questions all the time from my audience about it. And I was like, I I haven't actually done it. (laughs) So I, I couldn't really speak to it. So I decided to do the program myself and also read the work, which I had, I had seen, but I hadn't actually read yet. And so that is Tim Spector who created all of this. I read his two most recent books. The first one is The Diet Myth, Why the Secret to Health and Weight Loss is Already in Your Gut. And his second book, Spoon Fed, Why Almost Everything We've Been Told About Food is Wrong. Well, he does have four books, but those are the two that I read. And friends, oh my goodness, those books were incredible. They are up there in my favoriteest books ever. And I honestly actually mean that. They dive so deep into diet from a perspective that I feel is so overwhelmingly not cherry-picked. It's refreshing. It basically just really looks at what does food do in our body? What is the history of our genetics with that? How does our gut microbiome play a role? What are the lies and the myths and the misconceptions told to us through you know, diet, culture, and the processed food industry, and even scientific studies? On top of that, I am now actually currently doing the Zoe program. I think I'm on day eight or so. The whole thing has been amazing. Oh, and then on top on top of that, Tim is writing the foreword to Jen's new book, Cleanish. So that was a really lengthy introduction. But just to say, I am so, so excited about this conversation. Tim, thank you so much for being here. It's a great pleasure. I'm looking forward to our chat. I am as well. And so for listeners, I do think a lot of them are probably pretty familiar with your work, but I will let them know that you are a professor of genetic epidemiology at King's College London. You are a fellow of the Royal Society of Biology and the Academy of Medical Sciences. You've published over 900 scientific papers, which is insane. And this is super cool. You're actually ranked by Google as being in the top 100 most cited scientists in the world. I mean, just let that fact land. That's, that is a very big accomplishment. But yeah, so to start things off, we were just talking before this. There's so many things that we could talk about. I would just love to know a little bit about your personal story and what led you to where you are today with your fascination with the gut microbiome and also studying our personalized responses to food. Okay, well, the story goes way back, actually, to when I, I started studying twins about 28 years ago, and I, I set up the UK's twin registry, which now has 14,000 twins in it, which basically the most well-studied people on the planet. Most of the early years were spent looking at how fascinating these similar identical twins were compared to their fraternal twins. 
And we made lots of discoveries and interesting things, both about, you know, diseases, obesity, diabetes, but also things like personality and even, you know, genetics of religion and whatever. You can study anything in these guys. But after about 10 years, I got to be thinking, well, why are some of these identical twins uh, different? Why do they get, you know, one gets cancer and the other one doesn't? And that seems to happen quite a lot. One gets an autoimmune disease and the other one doesn't. Why sometimes, you know, not always, but sometimes one is overweight and the other one's skinny. And it sort of started to play on my mind that, you know, I've been uh, you know, doing genetics. Obviously, I was telling everybody that genes were the only thing that matters. And suddenly I was having a bit of doubt because these are identical twins have you know identical genes in every cell in their body. So I was looking then for things that might be different in these identical twins. And it really turned out that the one thing that was most different about them were their gut microbes. And that really was that sort of aha moment. And when we actually tested this in 2013, and, and came up with a result, you know, one of the very early studies of the gut microbiome, that actually they're hardly more similar than you, know, you or I. That was pretty amazing. And it really led to everything else, to me talking about how, think and thinking about how if our gut microbes are different, then, you know, they eat our food and they produce all these amazing chemicals from our food, and that's probably why we're so different and why we all react differently and why we have to look at nutrition in a totally different way to what you know, I was taught at medical school and is still taught in, in mainstream nutrition and to doctors and health professionals. So really it was that, that sort of insight using the identical twins, saying, well, if identical twins are different for their microbes, that means that, you know, a lot of these things we've taken for granted just aren't true. And then I went off and, you know, really got into nutrition in a big way and uh, did a lot of research for my books, which is how I sort of caught up on the field. And, and there we are. And this is, this is really why the last 10 years, having studied hundreds of different diseases and things and looked at genetics, epigenetics, and all kinds of other fascinating scientific areas, uh, you know, I've decided this is the most exciting area of science today and that not only that i'm not interested in publishing you know another hundred papers i'm interested in actually doing something that creating science that changes people's lives and that's that's really where, where i am today i love that so much and i will say definitely reading your books definitely the most nuanced and eye-opening view i've seen of the microbiome so with the twins where along the line of their personal timelines does that difference in the gut microbiome occur is it at birth or somewhere along the line of their lifestyles or is it different for each individual twin i mean we haven't been following the twins with their collecting their poop for 30 years unfortunately we only People thought we were crazy when we started 10 years ago, but putting our freezers full of, of, of poop samples. Most people are happy with blood and urine, you know, at a stretch. So we don't know exactly, but we, there have been some studies of young twins, and it, it, they're no different really to unrelated twins. And the, the first three years of life, it's a bit of a lottery which microbes you get and how you start life. And that depends whether you've had a cesarean section birth 
you know, who delivered you, whether you've been given antibiotics, whether you had any infections, whether you're breastfed, you know, which part of the country you lived in, whether you had a smelly dog that, you know, used to lick you. All this kind of stuff has a big effect on your starter cultures, if you like, in your gut. And so we, we're not sure exactly when these differences occur, but it doesn't look like at any point in life even identical twins are really the same. I think there's so many life events that change the early structure of your microbes that that probably means that we're always going to be unique and that you know that there's so much randomness in it much more so than we we ever believed and but that that uniqueness actually although it's annoying for scientists is actually a great boon for us as individuals because it means we can uh, work out our own path to and we must we can't just depend on other people's answers to things but it means what work didn't work for someone else can work for us Different diets can work for one person and not another. Different medications can work for some people and others. So it, it makes life, on the one hand, a bit more complicated, but also I think is, is quite empowering because it, it means that we all have to become our own scientists in a way to understand our own bodies. And I think that's, that's an exciting finding. We can't just take it all for granted and assume that, you know, some doctor or, or specialist knows all about us because they've studied other people. That actually leads really well into one of the biggest questions I have about the microbiome that has haunted me for honestly years. And it has to do with the role of the potential for change in your personal gut microbiome. So it seems like on the one hand, well, backtracking a little bit, something I never thought about before was you talked in your book about how, you know, there are bacteria everywhere, but there's only certain species that specifically are specialized to colonize the human gut. So it seems to me that there's certain species that you would get from birth. And if you don't have that natural birth, like, can you get them back? And then when people do rounds of antibiotics, can you get them back? How does that compare to the gut bacteria that you can change through diet and lifestyle? Like, are there certain species that when wiped out, you can just never get back compared to some that you can, quote, grow if you follow a certain diet? The truthful answer is nobody knows, but we can speculate because we just haven't done these experiments in humans by by which you you know you wipe out all their their gut bugs and then reintroduce others. We do know from mice that you can grow in sterile environments that you can start reintroducing some, and there's no doubt there's a some are much harder to grow and others are very easy, and there's a sort of spectrum of these these microbes. And we're sort of seeing in the Zoe studies that it's actually easier to influence your bad microbes, get them down, than it is to improve your good ones. And that's that's an interesting observation we haven't really sorted out yet. So it's sort of once you've wiped out all your good microbes, it does seem hard to grow them back. And I've got the story of my son and McDonald's to uh, as a sort of anecdote on that, which I, I do discuss in the book, that I wanted to do a sort of microbiome supersize me experiment and chose my son Tom because he was willing to do it for no money as long as I paid for eating all his meals for 10 days at McDonald's. Uh, and he was a student and he actually liked McDonald's at the time and, and he was very skinny. So I did this and 
he lost about 30 or 40 percent of his gut diversity. So he lost quite a few species, according to our tests at the time. And although I sent him packs of salads and, and fruit and veg, two, two, three years later, he still hadn't regained that diversity. So I think you can knock off good bugs and, and find it hard to get them back. Whereas if you change from a bad diet to a good diet, you can see a reduction in the bad microbes, the sort of inflammatory ones, you know, the, the ones that come out when you eat lots of fats and processed foods, and you can get rid of them. So this is all very new. No one's really doing these, these long-term intervention experiments. So we're having to guess a lot of it. This is the current view of, of where we are, that there are some species that may be hard to grow and, and others easier. It's quite interesting. Um, when I tested myself recently, and you'll get your result, there's a, one of the bugs that the Zoe plant looks at is, is called blastocystis. And this is a parasite that you really, you really wouldn't want in your guts because it's associated with travel, diarrhea, and other things like this. You say, oh, I don't want this bug in me. But 30% of British people have it. And it turns out that it's associated with being thinner and digesting your fats better. So actually, it's a good, good parasite to have. And people in general lay way less and they have less internal fat. One in 10 Americans has this parasite, according to our latest data. So, and we've been trying to sort of work out how we can boost it, if you like, and we haven't yet come up with an easy answer, but we, we know much better how to suppress the bad guys that cause inflammation and um, mess up your metabolism. So it's, I think it's going to be possible, but I think it's going to be much more complex in how we deal with the, these problems. But I think the, the case of my son is interesting because it, it just shows you that small amounts of junk food for a while isn't a real problem. But if you go for a long time without fiber and just eating all these chemicals, you know, you can do some permanent damage to your microbes community that I'm not saying impossible, but much harder to um, get back to normal. Is that blastocystis hominis? Yes. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because when I hear that, I think parasite, bad, but not. No. People have asked me if I'll sell mine to them, you know? So, uh, yeah, I can good deal on the internet if anyone wants my blastocystis. Super curious, speaking of the germ-free mice, because you talk in your book about how they're expensive to maintain because they require so much more food because they naturally are thinner. Do they have the health benefits of that we typically see with being underweight or do the germ-free mice that are thinner have other health conditions that might be a problem? I'm just wondering if that speaks to the potential benefits of a sterile gut. It's interesting. They, they don't seem to have any anxiety. So if you wipe out all your gut microbes, you, you can sort out anxiety levels. So they don't get stressed, but they don't really do much either. They're not very interested. They're not interested in, particularly interested in eating or having sex or doing all the fun things in life. And they don't get, but they don't get stressed out. So they're in this sort of neutral environment where nothing much happens. They don't get particular allergies or anything else like this. So they're in a strange state, but they, they do need much more food to stay alive. But I think they have a very dull life. <laughs> so I wouldn't recommend it for anyone else. It's hard to know. You know how natural it is comparing them directly because it's it's a bit of an artificial experiment. But 
it's certainly interesting in the extremes to see how different they are, and particularly the effects on the brain. I think that really is really interesting, and that's, I think, a real growing area about how important gut microbes are for things like anxiety and depression in humans, and how, by implication, how important our diet is. And, and studies have shown it's you know, just as important. To, you can get the same results with a good diet as you can with antidepressant tablets. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. That is fascinating. So that really does speak to the role of the gut microbiome and creating different neurotransmitters for, for better or for worse, affecting our mental state. Are there any animals that have a GI system that is not colonized by gut bacteria, or does every animal have some sort of gut microbiome? Everyone that I know of has some form of gut microbiome. You know, even fish and other animals, it's just they're everywhere. And you got to remember that these gut microbes, you know, we have the large ones like parasites in our guts, and then we've got fungi in there, we've got bacteria. And then actually feeding off the bacteria, we've got parasites on them, which are these virus phages. So little viruses actually feed off our bacteria. So it's a sort of like a Russian doll. Everyone's in a way part of this ecosystem, but it's nearly never ending. And who knows, we might find something that's even smaller that's feeding off the viruses. We just haven't found it yet. And so it's like a the ecosystem of a jungle there's always something in there in that hierarchy that's that's changing it and that's why it's important to think of microbes not i mean it's fun to talk about blastocystis and and these other ones but i think you've got to start seeing them as this community of bugs that like a guild and they they work together 
as chemical factories. And I think that's the way to view them, that you, know, you give them fuel in the, in the form of food, and they convert that to key chemicals that uh, go around your body, either as vitamins, either as brain chemicals to keep you happy, as immune regulators to stop you getting autoimmune disease or food allergy or to fight COVID, or you know they change your metabolism and your appetite levels and the rate at which you're burning fat and things. So that, if you think of it in that way, then you've got to realize that you know, it isn't just one bug that's important. It's, it's trying to get that, the right community, the right team working together to get those chemicals produced in the right balance for you. And as many different microbes you've got, the better the, your range of defensive chemicals. I think that's, that's the way I've evolved into thinking about the gut microbiome. Where are you now with the gut microbiome and diet? So people who are on sort of extreme approaches to diet, veganism or carnivore, and if they you know do or do not thrive on such approaches, do you think that's chicken or egg? Like, like people who do really well on a vegan diet, do you think it's because they had a gut microbiome that is suited well to a vegan diet or... Did a vegan diet create a microbiome that can digest a vegan diet? I'm just curious about the chicken and egg between the diet and the microbiome relationship. Yeah, great point. But I'm not sure vegan is is the best example because vegan diet really is plant-based diversity and probably a third of the planet have a vegan diet, more or less. Clearly, we've evolved to eat like that in many parts of the, the world. You know, eating fish and meat and eggs isn't crucial to our survival. And we know that we've done studies. We compared to the big study with the British Gut Project, American Gut Project, a few years ago with 11,000 people. We looked to see what element of diet gives you the healthiest gut microbes. And it was not whether you were vegan, not whether you were a carnivore, fish eater, not whether you drank alcohol or whatever. It was how many plants per week you ate. Okay, so you, and the optimum was 30 plants. And in a way, this is a, now a theme that runs through my books and my talks. This is the sort of magic number that makes sense. Uh, a plant being any nut or seed or herb or uh, spice or whatever it is, it's a fairly loose term. But it means that if you're, if you're like me, a plant-based person but occasionally eats a bit of meat and fish, it doesn't really matter the day, you know, as long as I've got enough different plants in my diet, what else I eat? You see what I mean? So it's, it's in a way not about that rather limited description of the diet. It's because there are some very good vegan diets and some very bad vegan diets. There are some vegans who just eat cupcakes and sugary mixes without any real food and highly processed. Other vegans are super healthy. And similarly, you can be a meat eater, but as long as you've got enough plants in your plate, you're going to have the same microbes as a, as a vegan. So I think the, that's, that's true. Now, but, but I think your point was maybe to something like a keto diet or a carnivore diet where actually you're focusing on meats, proteins, and fats and a very low-carb diet. And again, our data suggests that whereas that for some people is fine short-term, for long-term, all our data suggests that that will reduce your diversity of gut microbes and for most people lead to long-term problems. Clearly, 
there's a huge variation within that. And some people we know know are more suited to eating high fat diets rather than high carb diets. And that's really what the Zoe program shows you. It really separates those groups. So you get an understanding of, you know, does your body overreact to sugar or does it overreact to fat? Can you then rebalance your your diet on that on that basis? So, and we know that microbes are responsible for that. So the people that, as you probably know, some people when they try a keto diet, immediately say yes, this suits me, and others say, oh, this is terrible, I can't bear it. We think it's likely that the makeup of the gut microbes determines how easy it is to to adapt to those those diets. So I think there's a short term answer and a, a long term one. I've, I've probably confused you on that, but um, that. Uh, it's 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 not about the labeling of the diet it's like saying well, what else do you have because i'm sure there are some people on keto will say actually i have lots of plants as well and others who stick strictly to trying to get their 70 percent fat levels and then neglect that variety that i think is crucial but if people understand the gut microbiome more i think you can probably modify all these diets but still help the gut microbiome if you understand that the gut microbiome is actually crucial for your long-term sustainable health. So if variety in the diet, is it causational or correlational? Like, is it possible that people who have the gut microbiome to digest a wide variety of plants self-select to that diet and that people who, because a lot of people, especially in my audience, have digestive issues and they feel like if they were to go on a a whole foods, plant-based, vegan diet with a ton of different plants that they would experience a lot of digestive distress. And so I wonder if their microbiome is not a, quote, healthy microbiome. And so they automatically are self-selecting to not follow that diet. Does that make sense? Yeah. You're right. You're right. I mean, it's it's chicken and egg, and I think it, it comes back to the idea of, you know, you've got diet and you've got the microbiome, and on the one hand, I'm saying to you that diet influences your microbiome, but also your microbiome influences your diet. So it's a two-way process. If you've got an inflammatory microbiome that's used to having, you know, high sugars, fats, uh, processed foods, then it is going to be seeking those kind of foods in a way and we and there's some fascinating animal experiments thinking that you can actually modify your food choices by fiddling with your microbes you know your actual microbes say give me more burgers you know because that's what the microbes are doing well on and they're sending out signals indicating appetite so we don't know this is true in humans but it's certainly true in little small animals so i think it it is a bit of both and there is a slight catch-22 that i know a lot of Patients get upset when you, you you tell someone with IBS, you know, oh, just eat lots more vegetables and you'll be fine. Because they say, well, actually, no, it's the you know the vegetables that set me off, so I avoid them. I think we have to find that balance and understand there is a two-way relationship, but that long-term, you have to work out, you know, there are 30,000 edible plants, they reckon, in the world. So I think we have plenty of time to try and find ones that we can eat that will be okay for us. And I think what I worry about is many of the modern uh, diets and fads don't include this long-term plan to increase your plant diversity. So they might work short-term, but they, can't, you know, they, they might be self, 
defeating because of this other problem. So all of these ideas to get you through that short term need to have some long term plan. It's a bit like FODMAPs diet. They come to an end and then you say, yes, it's great. I've avoided all these foods. But then what do you do? You've got a very restricted diet. Your microbiome is going to get worse. And so, you know, these problems are going to recur unless you find some longer term solution, which is actually a longer journey. Are the um, potential long-term issues from that from the low-carb or are they from the high-fat? Because you could be low-carb, high-fat, or you could be low-carb, not high-fat. I think this all depends, and this comes back to, in a way, the, the idea behind the ZOE program of testing people to, to look and see what's, your, what's your, your standardized response to you know, a muffin loaded with sugar and fat. Is it mainly that you react with a big sugar peak or is it mainly that you react with a big blood fat peak at six hours which suggests you're not really getting rid of the blood fats as as efficiently as you should which could lead to long-term inflammation problems and we're finding that there's a huge variation and this is what we we saw in the in the, the zoe predict studies eightfold differences in how people respond to an identical muffin. And so I think you know, these questions are very hard to answer at a sort of global level because everyone's going to respond differently to how they're, whether they're going to respond better to fats or better to sugars or you know, well to both or not well to both. And so this probably explains why it's, you know, we've found it hard to tailor diets to people just by dogma of saying, you know, all keto diets work or all low-fat diets work. And, you know, the trials that have been done have, have always been inconclusive between the two because on average, you know, some people respond to some and not, not the other. And I think that's, that's where we need to be thinking about is, you know, what, what, what diet is right for me? There isn't necessarily a global diet that's going to be perfect for everyone with the caveat that, yeah, you, you need to look after, everyone needs to look after their gut microbes in some way. I don't want to have an agenda and I don't want to have like one idea, but if I had one idea, it's that there's not one diet for everybody. I really feel like with the, the low carb keto world, I feel like it's sort of like what we were talking about earlier with veganism and you can have, you know, plant-based whole foods, veganism, or you can have like processed veganism. And those are two entirely different things. And I just wonder how often the, the difference in with the keto world, the actual fat levels, because I, I personally tend to follow a higher protein, low fat approach actually with intermittent fasting. But when I do even keto, I, I don't go crazy high fat. Question about the plant variety. Does that include spices? So if you did a spice blend that had like 10 different spices, would that count as 10 different things? In your diet? It depends whether you're an optimist or a pessimist, I think. We don't really know is the answer what the minimum amount of food is that really counts. I think that's pushing it a bit, to be honest, to just have a few grains of something. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> it's like, how can I get my 30? <laughs> but, you know, I find it pretty easy. I mean, just, you know, to say how I've changed my diet, you know, I used to have a granola or a muesli. Uh, a bit of low-fat milk and an orange juice in the morning. And, you know, I did my tests, worked out. That was probably the worst thing I could possibly have. And, you know, I have yogurt, kefir, a bit of mixed fruits and mixed nuts and seeds. And that gives me like eight, eight plants just on that one meal. 
So it's thinking like that, and then you can sprinkle others on your salads and whatever. So it's not as hard as you think, but you know, always adding some coriander, some cilantro, some parsley. You know, these are obviously plants that make they make sense. Basil, you know, this kind of stuff all counts. Clearly, things like turmeric, ginger, yes, they they definitely count. You know, some industrially made spice mix made in China. I'm not sure I'd really, you know, go out and claim that's ten ingredients. Therefore, I'm fine. You've got to work out for yourself what you're gonna you're gonna count. And it's a bit like intermittent fasting. We don't know what the minimum amount is to break a fast. And at the same time, we don't know, you know, what the minimum amount is that's going to stimulate your gut microbes. So we're sort of we're evolving our advice as we go along. What have you found on fasting and the gut microbiome? I know you talk about macromancia. Do you find changes in the gut microbiome with fasting? Well, certainly we we do see changes. Generally, the the longer the the fast, the the less you get in, inflammatory microbes, and the more you get the the good guys out, because we know that. If you do have a, a long period of fasting, it allows your microbiome to rest. Uh, a cleanup team comes out and basically tidies up your gut lining. And this seems to improve both the quality of the gut lining, but also your general metabolism. And we've also seen that the t- meal timings also influence your, your sp- spikes of your gut, your, your blood glucose and your blood fats. So we know that this they're crucial factors but it's we also there's many factors involved like circadian rhythms and whether it's morning or evening also makes a difference which can vary between people as well but in general all our data is pointing out that intermittent fasting or restricted time eating perhaps more particularly which i think is becoming more common than intermittent fasting is beneficial for both your blood sugar responses and your gut microbes you know we're, we're still working on this in the a- analytics or in the zoe program as as we find that more and more people who are taking the program also do some restricted time eating anyway so we are seeing this uh, interestingly from our first data we showed that the idea that and i mentioned this in the books that skipping breakfast was actually a good idea for many people does seem to be backed up by our data, but it's, it's certainly not true for everybody. And it might change with age as well. So you might be someone that's always had breakfast, but it might be worthwhile switching to avoid it, you know, as you get over 50 or something to see if it's changed. Because you might metabolize food like I do better in the evenings than the mornings now, whereas perhaps when I was 20, it was completely different. So it's, as always, these things just get more complex, but we're fairly sure that Fasting is going to be a major part of our advice going forward, and we want to start collecting enough data so we can be able to tell people whether they're you know, predominantly a morning person, an evening person, and, and trying to work out, based on the science of the testing, you know, when, when they should be doing their fasting period. But I think it's here to stay. That I, I, you know, it's, I don't think it's a fad. I think that's a, something you can do long term, and it suits many people. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits 
The longest lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the US is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives. Dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I am so glad you brought up, yeah, the circadian rhythm nature. I've been recently, I've been diving deep into chronotypes because I'm going to interview Dr. Michael Bruce, who wrote The Power of When. Also in the circadian rhythm world, I recently interviewed Azure Grant. She's a um, researcher at UCSF and she works with Aura Ring. And in one of her studies, this blew my mind. Like this made me just rethink blood tests altogether. They had people check their cholesterol panel, basically like their trigs, their HDL, their LDL, and their total cholesterol all day, just constantly. And every single person at some point during the day, their markers went into the risk category. And the triglycerides, LDL, and total cholesterol, I believe, all fluctuated significantly. HDL stayed more similar, which I found really interesting. But I don't know, that really blew my mind because it made me realize that we, I think we often do a snapshot of blood tests and we make a lot of assumptions, but it can really be hard to know what's going on. Have you seen with Zoe, with the muffins, like what role does the timing play in the fat clearance after eating the muffins? And maybe we should backtrack about the setup of how of how it works. Okay, so basically what we did this big science experiment a couple of years ago where we got 1,100 people, mostly twins, to do these standardized studies for a day in the, in the, in the clinic and then uh, two weeks at home. And basically we're recreating this as a home kit, this ex- experiment, in slightly less detail, but you know we know what's, what goes on in, in several thousand people now. We, also, we did follow-up studies. And basically, it's giving people set meals, getting to log all their foods, getting to log their energy levels, their appetite, and at the same time, uh, their sleep and exercise, all with wearables, etc. And at the same time, logging their continuous glucose levels with a glucose monitor, which lasts for two weeks. And they can read on that every five minutes from their phone. Also doing a few tests where you see what your six-hour post-meal blood fat level is. And 
We also measure inflammation markers and other things like this. So, and then as well as your microbiome. So basically, you get this rather comprehensive test to look at how you are responding to food in different ways that allows us then to put all that together in algorithms that gives you scores for all your common foods that ranks them in order for you in place of how you responded in terms of your glucose, how you respond in terms of your fat, and how it's going to affect your gut microbes. And that way, everyone gets a personalized score on an app that they can use to then go on a three-month program of choosing their meals based on what scores are going to give them the least peaks, therefore the least stress and inflammation on their body without restricting calories, without you know doing things that most diets do. Because we just believe it's just a question of swapping choices and thinking more diversely about what you want to eat. Just thinking more intelligently about food choices. So that that's the basis of it. Clearly to get that information we've got to do a bit of basically you do a home science experiment and share it with you know tens of thousands of other Americans so we get these amazing results which get better all the time. And as well as being told about the foods, you also get certain gut boosters to say which foods you need to eat to reduce your nasty bugs and which foods you should eat to boost your, your good ones uh, even further and to, to improve that ratio, which we think is, uh, is crucial so far. So that, that's, in essence, the, what's going on. And we also, as part of this, met, you know, we measure... So it's not, and the results so far really show that you know, nearly everyone loses weight without, as I said, calorie counting, which I think is a nonsense. And you know, six to eight pounds in a month is is the average. But I think even more important is virtually everyone reports better energy levels and lower appetite signals, so less hungry, just by switching the foods to something that maybe doesn't give them those spikes. And that, that's really the, uh, the essence of where we are. So, you know, we started a few months ago, but that, that's essentially what it is. It's a, it's a totally novel way of thinking about food that tailors it for you in a, in a way that is sustainable for years rather use. than just what is the, the macronutrient diet. breakdown. So I'm currently in the process, and for listeners, the setup of it right now is that you do one day where you have breakfast and lunch muffins, which... <laughs> I did them in my intermittent fasting window. So I follow a, a one meal a day evening. So I, the process for the breakfast and lunch takes about six hours. So I did it from 7 p.m. Like I was taking my finger prick test at like 1 or 2 a.m. What is the macronutrient breakdown of those muffins? What are you actually testing from them. And then the next day you do another set of breakfast muffins, which I actually haven't done yet because they said I could do it on a different day. But what are you testing from that? Okay. So I can tell you didn't really like the muffins. Sorry to interrupt. It's so funny. So Jen, my co-host, she was like, you're not going to like the muffins because there's this idea out there that they don't, I don't know. People were saying that they don't like the way they taste. I knew I was like, this is going to be, cause I haven't had processed sugar or flour. It's gluten-free flour, but, or vegetable oils in years. And I just knew I was like, this muffin is going to taste like the most amazing thing I've ever tasted. And it did. 
And then I was ravenously hungry. And I was like, I fast every day for, you know, 16 to 20 hours. You have to fast for four hours after it. And I was like, I was starving. I was like, this is awful. (laughs) But it tasted amazing. And it made me feel so hungry after. Well, basically, yeah. Most of it is, most of it is, is, is vegetable fat and sugar. Okay. So what we're doing is, you know, the aim is not to give you a muffin that is amazing and uh, a best-selling muffin. It's basically based on our work in the thousand people. What what stimulates the blood sugar enough and the fat levels enough to get a, a response that differs between people without making them sick? So it's like it's a sort of I can't remember the exact percentages of, of both, but you can probably tell they're fairly greasy and they leave a sort of stain on the on the paper, showing that there's plenty of fat in them. But they've also got plenty of sugar that gets released, and it's getting that balance right. So there's not too much fat to suppress the sugar, et cetera, et cetera. What we find is, yeah, that we get a good reading on someone's response to both sugar and fat with that single muffin. That's why we ended up with with what it is. So that I think there's only there's just be eight percent protein, I think, from the flour, but the rest of it is it's fat and sugar. There's no miracle other ingredient, unfortunately, and and not much fiber. Uh, so it, it's it's uh, it, you wouldn't want to be on that continuously, but you think you did badly with that. I, I had to do an experiment where I had to eat them continuously every four hours uh, for 24 hours to look at my circadian rhythms. I've never felt so ill in my life. I, I was spiking. I was doing these massive sugar spikes and then dips. You know, I couldn't concentrate. I couldn't work. I couldn't do anything. It was really horrible. So um, I'm not doing that one again. I, that's the one. I do lots of experiments, but that was probably the worst <laughs> thing I've done. So having it a one-off, you know, with a black coffee in the morning, that's probably okay, you know, but having it uh, as every meal is is different. But then you realize some people do that naturally, in the, you know, in the U.S., that's quite common. People just uh, go from one massive fatty carb to another and go from one sugar spike to, to sugar dips. Do you get sugar dips at all? I wear CGMs a lot. In general, with the pattern that I do, I'm pretty consistent during the day. I don't really get crazy dips. My blood sugar does lower consistently from breakfast until dinner. And then when I have dinner, it usually spikes to about 120 max, and then it goes back down. And this is eating... (laughs) I eat an insane amount of fruit actually, but I do low fat. So I never like to combine for me personally fat and carbs. So I either do high carb, low fat or low fat, high carb, but it seems to work pretty well. And I see that on my CGM. The thought I had doing the the muffin experiment was I had flashbacks to when I used to eat, you know, like a typical standard American diet and, you know, having those blood sugar swings. And I was just thinking, I can't believe I used to do this. Like, this is so miserable. Um, so I'm grateful to not be doing that. About six months ago, we, we published a paper about sugar dips. One in four people, after having a peak, three hours later, which is much longer than anyone ever looks, you know, most people have given up and gone home by then. One in four people had a quite a marked sugar dip. And those people, unknown to them, actually reported more hunger and loss of energy and ended up eating 10% more calories that day than people who didn't have a dip. So that to me was really amazing, showing that with this new technology, 
and these big numbers, we can find these new facts about people. So, there, you know, people eating an identical muffin shows, you know, you react very differently. You'll actually eat more or less in that day, depending on whether you dipped or not. And that really rams home the idea that calories are complete rubbish. You know, the idea that a calorie is always equal, that's complete nonsense. And I think, and the science is now absolutely proving it. So I think we're hoping to go on and try and work out how we can tell if someone's a dipper or not and warn them about the, you know, starting the day with too many carbs with other people might be fine on it and never dip. Maybe that sounds like you, that, you know, you're safe. But um, I think that was a lovely lesson that we mustn't assume we know enough about sugar and insulin. You know, sometimes you just got to look. Most people stop at two hours, but let's look and see what happens later on. And this is what this new technology allows us. It's uh, really opening our minds to all these new suggestions. But explains why, why many, one in four people, do end up with a feeling of low energy midday, you know, needing a cookie or a, a pick-me-up or something they feel because they've had that sugar surge and then a three-hour later dip. And, it, and I thought that was nonsense. I, I thought people were just you know, hysterical, but I, I'm completely wrong. And uh, the science is proving it. It's fascinating stuff. So are those dips reactive hypoglycemia specifically, or is it more related to the fasting? Is it specifically to the food? We don't know. I mean, we haven't been able to separate that out because we just, this is just a thousand people's uh, readings against, you know, and so we've just got the observation. We don't know the exact cause and whether it's insulin driven or it's but these were eating the same foods so we can't say that it was uh, a difference in the food i think it seems to be a difference in the person i think we found that everyone can dip at some point you know what i mean everyone's got a threshold that you can dip but some people dip more than others before i was ever wearing a cgm i intuitively felt like I was dipping. I wasn't calling it dipping, but <laughs> that I was dipping during sleep after eating. I do see that on my CGM, but I, I feel like I sleep through it. And then <laughs> by the time I'm awake, it sort of resolved itself. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. So you feel tired. So you don't mind having loss of energy while you're asleep. That's good. Right. The reason though I identified it is it used to be worse in the past, so it would wake me up. But now it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue. I'm super curious. Have you considered so the muffins? One is a you know lower fat than the other and lower carb, I believe. Would you be curious to see what would happen if you did two sets of muffins, where one was high carb, super low fat, and one was high fat, super low carb? I just really wonder about the context of processing fats and sugar when they're the only substrate being processed, you know, because maybe some people do process carbs better, but only in the context of low fat. And maybe some people process fat in the context of low carb. Yeah. Well, we did lots of different combinations in the, both the pilot studies and the actual Zoe clinical trials. So we did use, I think, five different muffin combinations. The, the problem is that You've got to use something that people can actually eat in a in a, in a short time. And m- many people found that if the muffin was too fatty and didn't have enough carb in it, they couldn't actually eat it or they were sick. And so you do have this limitation that you, you can't, you, you know, if you're developing a, a, 
commercial product you want everyone to use, you've got to, in a way, make sure that it isn't too extreme. So I think they're interesting experiments to do, but we couldn't really push it to the extremes. And we have to just go by what most people will eat, you know, without making themselves sick. So people are actually very sensitive to fats or sugars more than you might think. And, and everyone's different on that. So that's the other parameter that slightly limits us to, to do this. But in the end, we're trying to be pragmatic. You know, we're not necessarily trying to answer all the physiology questions. We're trying to just use this as a base to categorize people as to, you know, which way their metabolism is, is pointing. But as, as we get bigger numbers, I think we will be able to start dissecting out these more detailed questions, which also, you know, not just carbs and fat, but remember, we've got proteins, we've got fiber. And, you know, whether you have a high fiber meal the night before, or how much sleep you had the night before, all these other, there, there's so many factors that it's very hard to isolate individual ones. So I think we've, we're probably going to move to this model of really multifactorial design and, and be pragmatic because there are so many things that do affect your metabolism. And I think in the past, we've been very focused on individual dietary items to extreme. It's a reductionist idea that it's all due to this particular you know, type of carbohydrate or this particular sugar, or it's all down to fructose, or it's down to this particular fat, or it's down to lectins or whatever it is. And I think we just got to move away from that and realize life's much more complicated. You know, we, we've, we may just have to assume we'll never fully understand it, but we can at least process it and use it to our advantage. Yeah, actually to that point, And again, I just encourage listeners to read your books because they are, like I said, mind blowing. But two of the, the facts that I wrote down from your books that speak to what you just spoke about. One was you mentioned basically if you isolate any sort of compound from food, so, you know, fat, carbs, sugar, whatever it may be, if you isolate it enough, you can create toxicity in a lab trial. And then the second thing was that you mentioned a meta-analysis of the 12 major food groups and every single food every single food group could be connected to increased or decreased risk of death. So it's basically like, it just goes out the window. <laughs> um, I just thought that was so fascinating. Yeah, it's a, it's a bit depressing, Matt, but it, it sort of means, yeah, well, when, when you see a headline, you know, about a specific food group causing cancer or saving you or being a cure for dementia, just, you know, take a rain check. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off. And that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What When Wine. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, 
two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Yeah, so listeners definitely get the books because he dives deep into all of those, quote, myths. Just a little background on why I was asking the question about the the different setup for muffins. One of the questions, because a lot of my audience is low carb or keto, and a lot of them seem to be following a low carb or keto diet. What I wonder is if a person does the muffins and and it comes back with bad fat clearance. So fat is not, you know, they don't clear it so well. The assumption and I haven't gotten to the recommendations yet for myself personally, but from what my audience is saying, it seems to be the recommendation is to go lower fat. My question is, I wonder if people are bad fat clearers, could the solution or the answer for them you know, be go lower fat? Or ironically, could it be the complete opposite in that in order for them to process fats, they need to be devoid of sugar. So, you know, they need to switch to a a metabolic state to process fats. So ironically, another diet that might work for them might actually be high fat if it's low carb. I just wonder about the implications of people who receive a um, quote bad fat clearance score for an audience that naturally gravitates towards keto or low carb. Yeah, those are great questions. I think the first thing to realize is that we don't regard all fats as equal. So there are, you know, fats like high quality extra virgin olive oil that really we don't have any upper ceiling on, you know, because it's so full of other good things like polyphenols, which are good for your microbes and et cetera. Whereas if you're having saturated fats from, say, processed meats, then they would be seen as bad fats and you really want to limit those. So we do make distinctions between good fats and bad fats for someone who has ends up with a bad fat test. I don't think we know the answer to whether you went on a you know less than twenty percent carb diet, whether you'd be able to process your fats better. I simply don't have the the data to show that, but uh, it may or may not be true. But it, it would be risky, partly because I think it might make it harder to keep that diversity we talked about in the in the gut microbes because you, again you're you're sort of really switching your diet in a, in a big way and so it might be hard to get those plants on your plate that would be my worry but you know I, I'm certainly not against people experimenting themselves to see how they feel but and you know there always will be exceptions when we give this individual advice, and there might be some people that don't like the advice because they they might feel good on a keto diet and get the advice there, oh gosh, it, you know, although I feel good, I'm not clearing this fat. But I think at least people have some data to go on and say, well, actually, okay, I need to be careful which fats I'm having, and I need to pay much more attention to you know, having good fats and maybe just restrict the the bad ones. And that, that's generally our philosophy. So. You know, we're not going to say don't eat avocados or or extra virgin olive oil, for example, even on someone who has a very bad bad fat profiles. Yeah, I'm sure my listeners will love love hearing that because that seemed to be the 
biggest question that I was getting from everybody. I'm actually, have you done much research on MCTs, specifically C8 fatty acids? When I do a high fat, low carb approach, I don't think people need to be slathering their foods in fat. People might find that surprising because I think people associate me with a low carb or a keto approach or quote paleo. I'm suspicious about the role of excess fat in the diet, but I'm fascinated by C8 MCT oil since it's processed so differently, you know, and is shuttled straight by the portal vein to the liver and doesn't even, you know, it goes a completely different route. I'm just wondering if you've done research on that fat. No, we we haven't uh, got enough data really to uh, gauge how that works. And it's quite hard to separate out those effects from all the other things that you might be eating with that meal. In general, you know, we take a view that food is made up of a composite, even you know, fatty foods are made up of a whole combination of different fats. And so only the highly processed ones are sort of single fat types. That for us is a problem. So there's lots of theoretical reasons that, you know, people quote for this particular fat being better than another, but often it's the the whole food that matters, not 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 the individual ingredients. And I think that, you know, we still know relatively little about all these fats. But we do know is that, you know, some people when they intake too many fats, whichever fats they are, but particularly some of the the stuff from processed foods, will it'll be hanging around in their body for, you know, six to twelve hours. And that causes inflammation in the vessels and all kinds of other metabolic problems. And so just knowing whether you're, you have that susceptibility, I think, is a useful guide to which route you should be going. And what have you seen in general with, from your studies with the people on the muffins? Do most people, is it usually that they process either carbs or fat better? Or do some people do great with both? Do some people do not so great with both? <laughs> Like, what are the trends? They're not really linked, interestingly. So you get you get all of the above. You get people who, there's annoying people that process both fantastically, which I hate. Others that process them both badly. And then you've got all the others in the middle, you know, and good for fat, good for bad for carbs. So, and until you do it, you don't really know. And of course, you've got the third element, you know, like me, I actually process both pretty fairly badly. I've got bad scores for my my sugars and my fats, uh, but my only saving grace is I've got great microbiome scores, which perhaps keeps me alive. Is there a worry that people who have been following a keto diet, because a lot of people who follow keto diets, I think there's an idea that when they do have a carb challenge meal, that there's a temporary glucose resistance could that create a false positive for processing carbs? I think it it could do. Or a false negative? It could do. And we're just gathering this data now to see whether we need to tell people to, you know, have a few days of other diet first before they, before they take the Zoe challenge. But we don't just have enough data at the moment. So far, it doesn't look like it does affect it, but we don't have a definitive answer at present. And in, in a way, uh, people need to ask themselves, well, do I want to test myself for, in a way, the diet that I want to carry on with? Or do I want to try and get myself back to where I was in some neutral position 
to see how generalizable I am. And in a way, people people will have their own questions, you know, and I think we don't quite know what most people want, whether they, they want to test whether their diet they're currently on is healthy, and this would give us the answer, or they want to switch to a neutral diet and then look at their general uh, state of health, but then go back to their their other other way. So I think you need to ask your listeners really what what they'd want. I suspect that you know people who are already doing intermittent fasting and keto probably want to know how their body is responding to that particular diet and therefore probably shouldn't change too much about it and just accept the results as being relevant for them. Yeah, now I'm just thinking, yeah, it would be so cool. I'm like in brainstorming mode if there was like another arm or an option for people following you know, low carb keto, where the muffins are tailored to that and they see what happens. Well, I'm sure as we progress, we'll be able to add in these extras and things, you know, for particular groups who are interested in doing some extra experiments or tests. And, you know, we're now offering retesting. And so that could also be done at the retest. You know, you could do it a different way, uh, request different test kits and things. Awesome. Well, so I will just super encourage my listeners. I've been loving the Zoe process. I'm so excited to get back my results. Hopefully my listeners can all try it if they haven't yet. A lot of them have, but if they haven't yet, definitely try it. And I will let them know that the code Melanie Avalon 10 will get them 10% off. So that is super amazing. Well, I want to be super respectful of your time. Two more questions before we go. One is what has been the most surprising thing from everything you've been doing with Zoe and the predict studies. I, I still get amazed when I look at that first graph we saw from the, the first Zoe clinical study of this eight to tenfold variation in blood sugar and blood fat responses to the same muffin. I still look at that and say, wow, because as you were saying earlier, when you take a, a fasting blood and you go to your normal clinic, you know, there's actually very little difference and change. And so suddenly seeing this dynamic difference between healthy people, to me, was this knockout result, which, if you link that with the microbes, was also fairly amazing. So uh, every time we look at the data, there's something else, you know, fascinating coming up. I mean, the amount of sleep you get the night before influences your your sugar levels and your energy levels. That's pretty amazing. And, And the meal before, you know, so sometimes you need to be looking at maybe 48 hours windows of our food to realize what our metabolic responses are. I think they're, they're cool. And finally, I don't know what your, whether your listeners have done the, the, heard of the blue poop challenge. So as part of the Zoe studies, we, um, we looked at transit time and, and uh, got everyone to eat a bright blue flavored muffin, a uh, blood colored muffin. You get to the food dye and you can get instructions on the, the joinzoe.com website on this work out your transit time, which is a cheap way of getting a microbiome tested, which gives you a snapshot of what's going on inside your gut. So I'd recommend everyone give that a go. And it's great fun if you've got kids. They love doing it. They love talking about poo anyway and, and playing with blue dye, although it can be messy. And so you count how long it takes until you see that in the toilet from the time you eat it. And we did the we've done these studies across the world and you know the average american was about 28 hours the range was between about 10 hours and 6 days 6 days 
<laughs> oh my goodness. That stresses me out <laughs> so much. But most people have no idea and it, and we, we all vary a lot. So these are things that haven't been ever looked at before. An idea that, you know, as we're getting to know our bodies more, these, there are some very simple things we could all, we could all do and uh, have fun with. And we don't know where the sweet spot is, but you know, as your diet, we do know that the longer your transit time, the worse your gut microbes look. So again, people doing keto, high-fat ones, just maybe need to keep a check on their transit times as well as a way of getting an idea of what's happening to their microbes you know, before they might get them tested formally. We were, we were amazed how well this performed. I did it as a bit of a joke. But it turns out this is better than any other medical test on the market. It's going to be used in all, all, all future studies. So a bit of a, a fun tip for the family. So next time we speak, you, we, you can tell we can compare our transit times, Melanie. This is probably TMI. I'm a little bit obsessive about monitoring my transit times. <laughs> um, I just feel like it's so important that things are moving through, and I'm always making notes. <laughs> like subconsciously. Although I don't think the blue muffins would show up for me because I eat so many blueberries. Like I, I just, I don't know if I would. These are bright luminous. You can't miss these guys. Anyway, you can, you don't have to share it with, you don't have to share it with anyone. You can do it in secret. I don't mind. Oh, I don't mind sharing. I'm, <laughs> I'm an open book. Oh, that actually reminded me really quick question. When you're looking at the CGM response to the muffins, is it based on, does accuracy versus precision matter? Because I wear CGM often so I can check it against the glucometer. So I like the one I'm wearing right now I think is off by 10 points. Does that matter or do you just look at the changes? We generally change we look at the changes rather than the absolutes. And so we look at the pattern. So yeah, the, so if the baselines are off, which they often are a little bit, it doesn't really affect our results. And so and we did actually have, they're actually better than people think. They're not very good at low levels, but they're pretty good at the peaks. And that, that's probably the most important. So the shape of the curve is, is, is pretty accurate in these things. They're, they're pretty amazing, really, considering how new the technology is. And yeah, I think they're great. Do you wear one, like, all the time? Or how often do you wear one, out of curiosity? I went through a year of wearing them all the time, and I got a bit fed up. So I, I've given it a break, but I'm just about – I've sort of forgotten how I respond to food. So I'm going to start, I'm going to start one tomorrow now and uh, get back into it. Yeah, I go through waves. Like I wear one for a few months and then I'm like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> and then I like take a break <laughs> and then I jump back on the train. But yeah, CGMs are amazing. Well, thank you. This has been so, so incredible. The last question I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? I'm grateful that uh, I'm still alive and I absolutely love my job. I love finding out more and more every day about food, nutrition. Being the cutting edge of this science is just the most exciting thing I can have. So it just gets me up every day and I'm happy to be alive. That is so wonderful to hear. And I am so grateful for the work that you're doing. Like I said, your books are incredible. Listeners, you've got to read them. And this Zoe program is just the most eye-opening, incredible thing. Um, I can't thank you enough for bridging the gap between science and scientists and research and then just the normal people and especially people who are interested in really taking charge of your health. You're really providing 
a very practical tool to do that and an agency. So you're making a huge impact on our world. And I can't thank you enough. Are there any other links you would like to put out there for listeners so that they can um, best follow your work? Well, they can follow me on Instagram, which is mainly about the nutrition side on uh, handle Tim Spector. Twitter is more about more of the detailed science and also my deviation into COVID, which also has a link with nutrition, which uh, we've just published because we we have about 4 million people who downloaded our COVID app during the pandemic. The joinzoe.com website has really all the details uh, that we've been discussing. And of course, my books, you can find pretty much anywhere online. Fantastic talking to you and great questions. This has been incredible and hopefully we can talk again in the future. I really, really appreciate your time and everything that you're doing. Be fascinated to see your results. That'd be great. I know. I'm so excited. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Tim. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.